turn in our Bibles to the book of Galatians. We'll be finishing chapter 3 this morning, Lord willing, and be halfway through our journey through this charter letter of Paul. Please stand with me if you would. Our text this morning is Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. Hear now the word of the Lord that is holy, inerrant, and true. Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word from Paul. But it is more than a word from Paul. It is a word from you, inspired by you, written by you, by your Spirit. Lord, we ask that you would bless us this morning, that we might know you more, that we might love you more, that we might appreciate and be thankful for what you have done more. We ask all this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. You're all familiar, no doubt, with one of the famous incidents in the American Revolutionary War. It was a time in which whether or not the American colonies would gain their independence or whether they would submit to the Crown of England and Parliament And the colonies teetered on the brink of extinction. There was squabbling. Northern colonies wanted different things than southern colonies. Larger colonies had a different perspective than small ones. And that wise old sage, Benjamin Franklin, who seemed to have a pithy saying about just about everything, said, United we stand... Divided, we fall. And the colonists realized that they must be united in that conflict. We see it even today in things as mundane as sports. We follow a sports team that gathers stars beyond compare at every position. And we're surprised when the team doesn't do very well. But then we find out it's because even though individually they might have gifts, they don't work together as a whole. They call it trouble in the locker room or the clubhouse. There's fighting, there's squabbling. It hurts and hinders the mission of the sports team. We see it in our families, don't we? All too often, as husband is pitted against wife, in-law against in-law, Sibling against sibling. And there's tension and heartache. It can especially be difficult at this time of year, this family time of year. 
Well, all of these things reflect a spiritual reality. Because Paul is describing that reality for us here at the end of chapter 3. He is finishing up this chapter in which he has gone on and declared directly and forthrightly what it means to be justified by faith, what it means to not look to one's works for justification, what it means not to try and keep the law, what the proper place of the law is, what the proper place of the promise of God is. And Paul tells us what it means to be united as believers, to be united as a church. He's speaking to the Galatians. He's speaking to the church everywhere throughout the world. But Christian, he is also speaking to us right here, right now, at this place, Katy, Texas, in 2006. He's speaking to us of the importance of being unified in Christ Jesus. And so what I'd like us to see this morning from this text are three things. First, the source of unity. Where does our unity come from? For it is only from understanding that, that we can then live out and work out that unity. And then secondly, Paul will describe to us the importance of that unity. And then thirdly, he will show to us the blessing that comes from that unity. The source of our unity, the importance of it, and then the blessing that comes from it. So let us now turn to Galatians chapter 3, beginning here at verse 26, where Paul says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Now those last two words are not a throwaway. Don't forget the context of where this passage comes from. One of the great benefits from reading or preaching from consecutive texts in a book of the Bible is that we don't isolate them. We look and we see what this piece does in the bigger part of the puzzle. And this concept of faith should be familiar to us by now. We are believers by faith. We are heirs to the promise by faith. We escape the curse by faith. We receive the Spirit by faith. Faith is our instrument, our vehicle. But it takes us somewhere. And Paul tells us here in two short, pithy words where it takes us. He says, in Christ. Three words, actually, we were to say, in Christ Jesus. It's one of Paul's favorite metaphors for what it means to be a Christian. Well over 150 times he uses it in his epistles. He speaks of believers being in Christ, being united to Christ. Now, notice how he phrases this. The very first word in this verse is actually the word all. Our English has translated it a bit different to make it easier to read. But the emphasis that Paul is making here is on all of us. Everyone who is in Christ Jesus is in Christ by faith. All are sons of God by being in Christ. It's as if he were to say this. Do you want to be a son of God? Do you want to be a daughter of God? Then you can only be so in Christ. There is no other place. There is no division. 
There is only one place to be a son, a child of God, and that is in Christ Jesus. And it's not just that that's the only place. It's inclusively stated. All, every single person who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, every single person, no matter how big or how small, how old, how young, wherever they live, they are all children of God. Now, this is a critical thing here in this letter. Because what Paul is fighting here is a two-family model. Paul is fighting those who are saying, well, God really has his family. He's fighting the religious equivalent of the Smothers Brothers Act. Some of you that are older may remember this. Or some of you that watch old television shows. The Smothers Brothers would come out, and one of the brothers, his famous line was, well, Mom always liked you best. That, in more religious couched language, is what the Judaizers were doing. They were saying to these Gentile Christians, well, yeah, okay, but you know, Mom always liked us best. God always liked us best. That's why he gave us circumcision. That's why he gave us the law. Yeah, he'll tolerate you, but if you really want God to love you, then you'll do this and that. Paul says, no, it's being in Christ. And again, he places the emphasis here on faith. And we cannot help when we see faith to think about the contradiction between faith and works. Again, faith here is an instrument, and faith has an object. It's not just, as we've said before, some kind of vague feeling that makes us warm inside. It's faith in Christ Jesus. Only by having faith in Christ are we sons of God. And notice here that this faith actually does something. We become children of God. That's what it means to be in Christ. Well, what does it mean then to be a son of God? Well, first and foremost, it means to be like Jesus. Because Jesus is uniquely the son of God. He is the only begotten, John tells us in John chapter 1. Paul here makes Jesus Christ central to his religion, to his life, to his faith. It is Jesus that we seek to emulate. The very fact that we are children of God, that we are sons of God, is because Jesus is the Son of God. Do you notice that? We don't earn our way into the family. We become sons because He is the Son. Now, this, again, is earth-shattering. Everywhere around you, people seek to work their way into God's good graces. We see it even today in families where people try and earn the love of their parents. But we know instinctively that you cannot work your way into a family. You are accepted. That is what happens to the Christian. It's because Jesus is uniquely the Son of God that we can be children of God. And Paul describes it by means of two metaphors. He talks about being baptized into Christ, and he talks about putting on Christ. When he says that we are baptized into Christ, here in verse 27, 
For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Some have taken this verse, taken it completely out of context. We're going to see they do it with verse 28 as well. Pretend that the rest of the book doesn't exist, and they say, Aha! You see, it's baptism that saves you. You're baptized, and that puts you into Christ. If you're not baptized, you're not saved. If you are baptized, you are saved. But this is a good lesson for how to read our Bibles. For what has Paul been doing now? Let's just count it by sermons. For about a dozen sermons. He's been saying, circumcision doesn't matter. It's faith. Works don't matter. It's the promise. And now those who would take this verse out of context would have Paul be saying, well, you know, circumcision doesn't count. Oh, but it's baptism that does. What? It's it's completely foreign to Paul's thought. Well, then what does Paul mean here? If he doesn't mean that we are saved by having some water applied to us, what does he mean? He means the reality that baptism represents. Because we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. We are brought to Christ by the power of the Spirit of God, giving us new hearts, new minds, new wills, united to Christ, brought to oneness with Him. Baptism is kind of like our adoption papers. It's something that shows us, ratifies for us, the inward change. It's a sign of God's covenant love. It is not the covenant. It is a seal of His redemption in Christ Jesus. It is not redemption. But still, it is so a part of identifying with God and the people of God that Paul uses that metaphor here. And it's not surprising, because you see what Paul is doing here is bridging the gap between the individual and his faith. That's what he's been talking about, right? How I can be right with Jesus Christ. And now he's talking about the unity, the oneness we have as a people. What better expression of that than baptism? A public declaration that we are a part of the covenant people of God. That we are claiming God's promises. This is baptism into Christ. And Paul puts it another way. He says, it's like putting on Christ. He says, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, notice something about what Paul says here. He says, those of you that have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Grammar lesson here. This is what we call the indicative mood. What does that mean? It means Paul is making a statement that something is true. He doesn't tell them they need to put on Christ. They need to apply themselves to putting on Christ. He says, you have put on Christ. Now, that's especially unique here because this is a metaphor that Paul uses throughout his letters, but this is the only instance where he uses a declarative statement. Usually, he says, as he says in Romans 13, put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. It's an imperative. It's a command. You are to do this. You may be familiar with Paul's command in the book of Ephesians. Put on the full armor of God. 
You see, those commands to put on follow this declaration that we have put on Christ. You see, to be in Christ means to take on Jesus' characteristics. To be humble because He is humble. To be loving because He is loving. To be patient because He is patient. To be kind because He is kind. To be zealous for the truth because He is zealous for the truth. Not because of some gain we hope to get from acting this way, but because we are acting like the one we are united with. It becomes a part of our nature. This is who we are. John gives us a little bit of a different metaphor for this putting on of Christ. He speaks to it about abiding in Christ. Christ being the vine and we being the branches. This is the metaphor that Paul is using. What might also come to mind to these Galatians would be an entire change. You see, we talked last week about the guardian, the school teacher, the babysitter, the pedagogue who leads us to Christ. Well, you see, a Roman youth of nobility would have a schoolmaster, a pedagogue, a guardian who would take him to school and keep him safe. But when he became a man, he literally put off the toga that he wore and he received a new toga with different coloring to signify that he became a man. This is what putting on Christ means. We become new creations in Christ Jesus. And because of that, because of that, we have the full right of sons. Being a son of God means that we can speak to the Lord in prayer. We can say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We can look to the Lord to care for us and guide us. We look to the Lord to shower love down upon us. As John says in 1 John 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. It also means, children, listen up here, to be a son of God, to be a child means you get the blessing of discipline. That's what it says in Hebrews 12. It says that we gain the blessing. Only sons are disciplined, not strangers. So when your parents discipline you, they do it for love. They do it because you belong to them. So the Lord does with us. The Lord chastens us because He desires our growth. He does it from love. This is what the source of unity is. Well then, secondly, if the source of unity is being in Christ and being a son of God, then why is this important? Paul picks this up in verse 28, another verse that is classic for being taken out of context. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. And so often this verse is trotted out to say that all distinctions are obliterated. As if we no longer have gender. 
It doesn't matter whether you are a man or a woman, or whether you decide to change from being a man to being a woman, or be a woman acting like a man. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what kind of job you have. And we know instinctively that this is preposterous. Where we live affects who we are. Whether we're a man or a woman affects how we live. Our means and our ability, our circumstances, affect how we live out our faith. This verse is not talking about obliterating distinctions. It's talking about something much more important. You see, what Paul is saying here is that old divisions are done away with. It's not a coincidence that Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. Paul has picked the three most polarizing divisions in the world throughout all of history. Think about it. What are the cause of most conflicts, wars, and fights? Difficulties and differences between nations and races, rich and poor, male and female. These are things that can fundamentally divide us. Why? Is it because these things are in themselves inherently evil? Well, we know that's not the case. Because the reason there are Jews is because God ordained it to be so. He chose Abraham. Paul is not about to abolish slavery. He sends Onesimus back to Philemon. And we know that the Lord in creation created man, male, and female. What does this mean here? It means that sin causes divisions in our midst. It causes divisions that are obvious to see in the world and perhaps sometimes not so obvious to see in the church. We think about how ethnicity and race can be wicked and evil because of pride. We could think about how material blessing can be wicked and evil because of our greed. We could think about gender and sexuality being a cause for wickedness and evil because of our sin and our lust. You see, these things, sin takes the occasion to cause to divide. It's so much so that our modern world is obsessed with this. I would put it to you that the world's failure to understand this is the reason why in every university we hear all the time about needing to have race studies departments, gender studies departments, Marxist departments. It's because everyone can see that these things divide and cause difficulties, but they also see that there's no solution. The problems that were a hundred years ago are here today. They're the same problems that were a thousand years ago. And this was true here to the Galatians. You see, Paul might also be playing off of a Jewish prayer. It went something like this. Blessed art thou, O Lord God, who has not made me a foreigner, but a Jew. Blessed art thou, O Lord God, that has not made me a slave, but a free man. Blessed art thou, O Lord God, who has not made me a woman, but a man. Rejoicing in division. 
And Paul looks at this and he says, this is not right. We have unity in Christ. And he gives the solution for these divisions. You know, there are no other solutions. We see that around us every day. America has spent billions upon untold billions to try and solve the problem of race relations. And not even dealing with every race on the globe, just primarily dealing with race relations amongst a few relations. And we still see obvious hate and anger on both sides. We've tried education. We've tried planned communities. We've even tried guilt and hand-wringing. And it doesn't solve the problem. You see, the world wants us to see these things as something that are on the one hand hopeless and on the other hand something that the planners can just fix given enough time and money. But Paul says no. He's got a much more radical solution. He says... The solution is the gospel. He says all of these problems go away in Christ Jesus. He says the differences don't, but the problems that are caused by them do. You see, Paul showing here that the gospel is more important than anything else that divides us. You see, Paul still was a Jew. He didn't cease being a Jew when he came to Christ. We see in the book of Acts that he will undergo certain Jewish rituals to reach the Jews. He will do certain purification ceremonies. But you see, he says the gospel is more important than being a Jew. The gospel is more important than being free. He says if you're called when you're free, don't seek to be bound. If you're called when you're a slave, don't seek to be free. Seek to be in Christ. This is true for men and women as well. The question comes to us then, is is that true for you? Is the gospel more important than being an American? Is the gospel more important than having a certain ethnicity? Is the gospel more important than being a man or a woman? Or will you allow those differences and those distinctions to harm your ability to take the gospel to others? We have this problem in the American church, don't we? Americans think that the first step to evangelism is not reading Bible verses. It's to create Americans in other countries. The first thing we need to do is westernize the people here. Then we can bring them the gospel. They don't say that out loud, but that's how we act so often. It's more important to be an American than to be a Christian. I say to you today that you have more in common with people living in Africa who look different than you and don't speak a word of your language than you do with many of your neighbors. Even if they go to the same gym and read the same books and watch the same television shows. Because your unity is in Christ Jesus, not in your address, not in your pocketbook, not in your color. This is what Paul is saying, and this is radical for the day. This is completely foreign. That prayer that I had recited for you, that we have, it's listed in Jewish handbooks. You know, the same exact sort of prayer is quoted 
by Diogenes and attributed to Socrates and to Plato. It's just a little different. Thank you, O God, for making me a Greek and not a barbarian, a free man and not a slave, a man and not a woman. This is the universal state of mankind to cause divisions and harm. And the reason why this is so radical is there's an entire new society that comes up in Christ. We find our true identity in this new society. All of our relationships are based on our relationship to Christ. You see, our union with each other doesn't depend on our likes and dislikes. It depends on our union to Christ. I had this brought home to me, thankfully by the Lord, in the first church that I attended. It was a small little Southern Baptist church. And here I was, a law student, a perpetual student, in my 7th, 8th, and ninth years of education. A learner of multiple languages. A understander and memorizer of history. And in my small Southern Baptist church was a big, hulking, big-barrel-chested, big-hearted man named Paul, who was a trucker. Nothing like me at all. Didn't finish high school. Didn't dress like I did. He had this habit of wearing a shirt that the buttons didn't, were buttoned down to about here. His experience in life was completely different from mine. His family was completely different from mine. But you know what? When we sat down and spoke of the Lord Jesus Christ, we had more in common than I did with friends at law school. There was a significant unity there. Now, I'm sure you have your own story. Hopefully, you're thinking of it right now. That's what Paul wants to well up in you. He wants us to see that what unites us is so much more powerful than what divides us. Because what divides us? Oh, it's just sin. What unites us is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has defeated sin, not just to save us from hell, but to save us from the divisions that will creep in amongst us. We are a true community. Now, what does that mean? Beloved, it means that you are never alone. Ever. God forbid, if your entire family should perish... You have a family because you are in Christ Jesus. You see, you cannot be a son or a daughter and not be a brother or a sister. It's impossible. You cannot be an only child in the family of God. You have brothers and sisters to come alongside you, to encourage you, to lift you up. Now, We said this verse is taken out of context. This new society, does that mean that we're all equal? That we're all bland? We're all vanilla? There's no diversity at all? No differences? We all have to read the same books? Like the same kind of comedy? Sing the same songs? Wear the same clothes? No! Sometimes we think that's what it means. 
You see, what Paul is saying here is this unity that we have in Christ allows our diversity to exist and to be a blessing. It allows us to rejoice in differences, not see them as cause for strife and struggle. And think about the power for the gospel that that is. To a watching world to say, wait a minute. He works and he stays at home. This guy likes football. This guy can't stand it. This guy is a Boy Scout extraordinaire. This other guy couldn't pitch a tent if his life depended on it. These children like these kinds of books. These other children like something different. What brings them together? How can they be friends? How can they encourage each other? And it's Christ Jesus. You all know that, don't you? You see it even here in Christ Church. We look around and we say, I wonder how they got to be friends. They're pretty different. We see it in marriages. Why is it that the preacher says in every marriage, may Christ be at the center of your home? That's because no matter what differences come up, they're petty in comparison to the union that we have in Christ Jesus. Now, the sad thing is, is that we don't always realize this. The church often fails. You see, the Judaizers were trying to draw boundaries within the church. Jews over here. Gentiles over here. Really good observers of the law over there. So-so observers over here. Forming camps. We do that too, don't we? Slavery has found its way into the church. Not so much today, but in the past. Racism finds itself in the church. You know, they say that the most divided hour in America is 11 a.m. on Sunday. Now, lest you think that you can assuage that with a bit of guilt, let me tell you, it is just as much occurring in churches where everyone looks different than we do. It divides us. Sexism occurs in the church. Not just in women not being given their true worth, but in men and women in the church who seek to obliterate all differences in the church, to make women men and make men women, or make them some kind of androgynous mix saying that God's perspective on gender doesn't matter. And the reason why this happens, put so well by a commentator, is because we are not yet far enough into Christ. We have not sufficiently put on Christ. We are not sufficiently in Christ Jesus. But there's hope. Because if that's the problem, we see that the solution is the gospel. It is not remaking American society. It's not getting a billion dollar grant program together. It's not changing the world overnight. It's about bringing the gospel to our neighbors. 
It's about telling others that the gospel is more important than anything that divides us. What hope that brings to us. This gospel that has the power to save us from death and sin and hell has the power to bring us together as God's people. We have a wonderful illustration of this. John 4, where John describes our Lord Jesus Christ at the well. He goes there and sees a woman. But she's not just a woman. She's on the other side of an ethnic divide. She's on the other side of the gender divide. And she certainly doesn't have the capabilities economically that a man would have. So she's on the other side of the economic divide. And what does our Lord do? Does he start a Jews for Samaritans program? Does he tell her she should feel good about herself and she can do anything a man can do? No. Does he give her some money and say, pull yourself up? No. He brings the gospel to her. And that makes everything all right. And it makes such a powerful connection that she goes out telling everything that he did for her. This is why unity is important. Finally and briefly, we see the blessing that comes from unity in the end of verse 28 and beginning of verse 29. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. To be united, to be in Christ, means that we are all Christ's. Literally, the text says, if you are all of Christ. It's the kind of construction where we might say, this is the car of me. It's my car. I own it. I control it. We are Christ's. We are united because we are His. He has bought us with His blood, body, and soul. You see, Paul did not cease to become a Jew. We talked about that. But he did become a bond servant of Christ. Being a Jew did not define who he was anymore. Being Christ's defined him. You see, even slavery isn't that important. If we think about that, that's a radical thought. Paul's saying, you know, if you're a slave, don't give it too much thought. Really think about whether you know Jesus Christ and are his. That's a pretty radical thought. Why is this? Because being Christ's is what gives us worth. And as we look at others, we have this unity because we see they have worth. Not because they're a man or a woman. Not because they're rich or poor. Not because they are American or African or Asian, but because they are Christ's. That is where worth is found. Would you have true worth? Then you must know the Lord Jesus Christ. That is where true worth is found. No matter how much money you get, no matter where your citizenship is, it is being in Christ Jesus that gives us our worth. Notice the formula in Ephesians 6 and verse 27 that you're familiar with. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Our unity, notice where that begins. 
one Lord. We have one faith because we have one Lord. We have one baptism because we have one Lord. We are all united because we are all united to Christ. As I've said to you before, that's why we call the Lord's Supper communion. It is our union with Him that brings us together. But we are not just Christ's. We are heirs. Being Christ's gives us the blessing of being Abraham's seed. And every blessing that is Jesus Christ is ours. That's why Paul can say, we are blessed with all heavenly blessings in Christ Jesus. You don't need anything else if you are in Christ. We need to remember this. Because divisions rear their head in the church. They may not be present now. They may not be manifest now. But it's only by looking to Jesus Christ that we can find true unity of purpose. And only there can we find true love for God's people. Let me close with a prayer that was written by the Archbishop Cramner. It gives us an idea as to how we are to view the church as something to love as we are united to in Jesus Christ. He says, O gracious Father, we humbly beseech you for your holy Catholic Church that you would be pleased to fill it with all truth in all peace. Where it is corrupt, purify it. Where there is an error, direct it. Where there is anything amiss, reform it. Where it is right, establish it. Where it is in want, provide for it. Where it is divided, reunite it. For the sake of Him who died and rose again and ever lives to make intercession for us, Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. That should be our attitude to the church. That we long to be in her. That we long to know everyone in the church. Because we are united by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with union in Christ. We pray, O Lord, that you would make clear to us that Jesus Christ transcends all boundaries, that he defeats all sin. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.